Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. I trust you've had a a good week. We see it's almost become commonplace. You ask somebody how their week's going. It's going good. That's it on the surface. Um, But I know that we live in a sin-cursed world, and because we live in a sin-cursed world, there is rarely a week that is without trials, struggles, difficulties of some kind or another. So it is very good to see you, and uh, all the more so in light of uh, a week where at the end of which we get to come together, we get to rest, we get to be reminded that our Lord has freed us from the curse of sin and death, and He reigns. And so we rejoice to be able to to do that together and remind ourselves of that uh, together. It's one of the joys of fellowship and coming together as the body of Christ. Well, as we come to our fourth and final instruction, of the great story of David and Goliath, we come to, the la- at last, victory. We've spread this story out over four weeks. That's probably three weeks longer than most of you would have expected with the story of David and Goliath. But as we approach the climatic moment when David encounters Goliath, we are really reminded perhaps even more than any other point in this story, of the great and wonderful news of the gospel. I doubt there's any in this room, including any of the children, who are not familiar and who do not know how the story ends, whether you've read ahead or whether it's from some lesson you heard as a child or some other anecdote. You know how this story ends. Maybe some of the, some of the details are a little bit less familiar. But as we watch David defeat the terrible enemy of God's people, we can recognize that God was and has accomplished on a much smaller scale here within 1 Samuel 17 what he has now done through Jesus' victory over our great enemy, death. It's one of the things that makes this story so wonderful is it pictures and it reminds us of that great victory Jesus had over death. We ended on a bit of a cliffhanger last week. It was a rather intense moment. David, the young boy from Bethlehem, he had announced to Saul that no one need fear. No one needed to be afraid because he, David, would fight the Philistine monster who was terrorizing Israel. And the Lord would deliver deliver David from his hand and he would deliver Goliath into his hand. As we looked at last week, that was an absolutely ridiculous and outrageous claim on David's part. It made no sense whatsoever. In the face of Goliath and who Goliath was, the giant that he was, the warrior that he was, for this young boy, too young to even be part of the armed forces of Israel, to show up and say, don't worry, I've got this, was an absolutely ridiculous claim. It was an absurd gospel message. To believe that salvation could come through one that did not look at all like the Savior that Israel needed. David was too young, he was too small, he was too inexperienced, and the list goes on. But really, as we were reminded last week, that's the point. That's the point of this message is to teach us, it's to remind us of the danger of looking for salvation through human eyes with human expectations and human judgment. 
As the Lord declares through Isaiah the prophet, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. And as we're going to see this morning, be reminded of for most of us, it is the same mistake that Goliath is about to make as we watch the gospel of David become reality. As we observe the gospel, the good news that David brought fulfilled before our eyes, we are reminded again of that even greater victory over fear and death that comes through Jesus Christ. We began this series, this just four-week series, on the story of David and Goliath, noting that it really takes us from fear to faith. That's where it moves us. The writer of Hebrews has made it explicit in Hebrews 2.15 that the whole world is subject to slavery, slavery through the fear of death. But that what we celebrate is that though death, through death, Christ rendered powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might make free those who through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. This is the gospel that is for the whole world. Paul proclaimed this good news in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory and that hope is that we have life after death. We do not enter into judgment, but we enter into life. But what I want us to contemplate this morning as we look at this story of David and Goliath, this moment of is as we look at it, ask yourself, do you, do I really appreciate the victorious nature of the Christian life? The victory that has been given to those of us who belong to Christ because of Jesus' obedient life, his atoning death, and his resurrection. Every Christian should know the thrill of joining in Paul's words of praise when he said, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the dangers I think that can begin to creep in, that can be difficult, is that when we focus on it, and it's good to focus at times and to recognize our need for holiness, for sanctification, that I would say that there is a danger of losing sight of failing to celebrate the hope and the happiness of the Christian life. We get so caught up with all of the things that we do wrong, because there's a lot of them. We get so caught up on trying to fix those that we lose sight of the victory we have in Christ, the hope and the promise that we have in Christ. Our very motivation for holiness and sanctification is that victory. We should rejoice. We shared with communion, in communion this morning. And this is a good question to ask. Is communion supposed to be a somber event or a celebratory event? Have you thought about that? Is it a somber event or a celebratory event? I would argue there could be a bit more celebration in a lot of our communion services, in our communion practice, because we are remembering and proclaiming a great victory a victory over sin and death that enables us to live with hope and joy amidst the curse of sin. Think about how amazing it is that we can confess our sins and know with confidence that they are forgiven. If you've grown up in church, that becomes so commonplace 
that you probably haven't stopped to think about it, to really think about it. How amazing is it that you can know with confidence that when you confess your sins, they are forgiven, that you are instantly free. That is freedom and it's cause for rejoicing. Well, again, what does that have to do with the story of David and Goliath? I guess we're going to have to get into it if we're going to see. We've been watching this story, the vantage point of the narrator. But for most of the Israelites that day, all they knew at this point was fear. Remember, we have the advantage of sitting with the narrator. We're watching this jump all over. We're with David when his father knew about that. We were with them when he met his brothers. We were with them when he just proclaimed this gospel message to Saul. But for the rest of the Israelites that day, at this point, they are still living in absolute fear and terror. There is no hope. Forty days and forty nights of terror they have experienced. They had not heard this gospel message that was proclaimed to Saul last week. As absurd as it was, they are without hope. So when David comes walking out from Saul's presence there, 1 Samuel 17, and we pick back up in verse 41. When David comes walking out from Saul's presence with a stick in one hand and five river stones in his pouch and a sling in the other hand, you have to wonder what were they thinking. As is so often the case when reading narrative, we're inclined to associate ourselves with the hero of the story. In this case, the hero is obvious, right? The hero is David. But if you find yourself doing that this morning, stop. Just stop right now. Because there's another set of characters with whom you and I belong. We're not the Savior in the story. We're somebody else. Do you know who we most closely resemble in this story? It's the Israelites. It's the rest of the armed forces. It's the fearful, the skeptical, the cowering, the hopeless Israelites. That's who we are in the story. We're not David. We're not even Saul. If there's any group whom we should see ourselves in through this story, it is the Israelites. This is not a story about us conquering the Goliaths in our lives. It's not a story about five forms of faith exemplified in the five stones. David only used one, so I've never understood that. No, this is a story of a helpless and hopeless people in need of a Savior. And it's a story that promises salvation to all men because there is a God in Israel who saves. And if you need any convincing that this God saves, just watch what he does to Goliath through a small young shepherd boy named David. David, you remember last week, refused to don Saul's bulky armor. So with stick in one hand, those five stones in his pouch, and his sling in the other hand, he walked down into the valley of Elah toward the nine and a half foot tall giant. There's something of a vivid foreshadowing of the psalm David would later write. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here David enters into the valley of fear and death. For 40 days and 40 nights, the fear of death and slavery had been preached by this Philistine there in the valley. Fear hung heavy over the valley of Elah. Now, put yourself in the place of those Israelites. 
and ask this. What was going through their minds as they watched this young boy with a stick and a pouch and a sling start walking toward the nine and a half foot giant? Maybe, who is this boy? What does he think he is doing? He's going to be destroyed in a moment and we'll all be enslaved by the Philistines. Now, what do you think his brothers thought? You know, they see somebody walking down and a moment later, they say, that's David. Narrator doesn't tell us exactly what they were thinking. He's told us what Saul was thinking when he first saw David. And he's about to tell us what Goliath was thinking when he saw David. And so we can surmise from that that that's pretty much what everybody was thinking. Verse 41. Whatever was coming at Goliath looked so that with his shield bearer in front of him, he actually he began to approach in order to make it out. He couldn't tell what it was. It was so small that it was coming at him. Then verse 42. When David was close enough to be seen, Goliath himself a bit shocked. And he has the same response Saul did. The same response all in the valley likely had. This is a boy. It's a handsome boy, but a boy nonetheless. As the narrator noted, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. Looking again through those human eyes, that human perspective, Goliath disdained him and then says in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? Then Goliath cursed David by his gods. Chief among those gods of the Philistines was Dagon, whom you may remember from 1 Samuel chapter 5. Perhaps you've gone back and read through 1 Samuel as we've been here these few weeks. The idol of Dagon and Ashdod could not even stay upright in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and kept falling face down, prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. Terrified the Philistines. They got rid of that thing. Well, Goliath makes a promise to David that if he'll just come a little bit closer, he'll go ahead and alleviate him of his life and feed his body to the birds and the beasts. You know the story. Death isn't going to come that day to David. Now, it doesn't come because Goliath is less powerful than he seems. Goliath is incredibly powerful. And it doesn't come because Israel didn't deserve death and judgment. Israel had spent the last 300 to 400 years walking in disobedience. Read the story of the judges. Things had gotten bad. They were stuck in this cycle of sin and needing deliverance, sin and needing deliverance because of how bad things would get. They were in this predicament because of their sin and because they wanted a king like the nations around them. And this king, as you follow the life of Saul, is pretty much useless. Even his best victories are declared as not that great. They deserved death and everything the Philistines would bring upon them for their disobedience. But we serve a God who delivers us from what we deserve, who offers mercy and grace. And that's the message that David proclaims and brings that day. David is unimpressed by Goliath's proclamation of fear and death. And so David boldly responds to Goliath in verse 45. And notice what he does. He takes note of all of Goliath's impressive armor and weaponry. 
all that, you remember, it's almost like we went into slow motion in verses 4 through 7 when we were first introduced to Goliath, looking at his weaponry that was far advanced than anything that Israel had. It had that same armor and weaponry that dazzled there in the sunlight in the valley of Elah struck fear in the hearts of all of Israel. Here is David acting as if it's nothing. Most importantly, however, David notes that Goliath has failed to recognize the most important weapon that David has brought with him that day. You see that there, don't you? But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. The God of the armies of Israel. The God whom this Philistine monster had been mocking for 40 days and 40 nights was coming with David. Verse 46, David continued to claim this gospel message that, again, the Israelites had not yet heard. Only Saul had. But he's proclaiming it in the hearing now of all Israel, as well as the Philistines. And the gospel that David delivers in verses 46 and 47 is a gospel of hope to the Israelites, who are looking on in wonder, holding their breaths, wondering what is going to happen next. The saving God of Israel, Yahweh, will demonstrate his power in the most unexpected of ways through an unassuming Savior. And notice David's final statement in verse 46. The whole earth, the whole earth would know, really, David? It's a bit presumptuous, don't you think? You see, the Valley of Elah is an obscure place. Outside of having read about it in 1 Samuel 17, if I were to ask you, when's the last time you heard of the Valley of Elah, I doubt any of you would ever raise your hand. You'll read about the Battle of Carchemish. That was a turning point of civilization. You'll read about the Battle of Tours that stopped the Muslim advance on Europe. You'll read about the Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon's great defeat in history books. But you know what you won't find? You won't find the battle in the Valley of Elah. It's too small. It's too insignificant. And yet it did have worldwide ramifications. Because it proclaimed that there is a God in Israel, a God who saves. And even though you don't find the Battle of the Valley of Elah in any history books, isn't it fascinating that throughout the world the story of David and Goliath is known? And though many miss its meaning, that's exactly what it proclaims. That there is, in Israel, out of Israel, a God who saves. And you know, there was another event that took place in a backwater addiction. Had no political significance as far as the world was concerned. It was the execution of a man. And the Romans had executed thousands upon thousands of persons. Many of them, hundreds if not thousands, by crucifixion. By the world standard, there was nothing unique about the death of another man by the Romans in the remote district of Judea. And yet the story and the impact of that event 2,000 years ago has been heard around the world. Not only does Israel have a God who saves, but the God who saves came, died, was buried, and rose again the third day. 
And ever since, the message has been proclaimed throughout all the earth that there is a God who saves. David's message of salvation was a bit too much for Goliath. It angered him so much he rushed forward. Apparently, he left a shield bearer behind because there was no shield to stop a stone. Leaving a shield bearer behind, it would seem, Goliath charges this impetuous youth. David, without fear, runs to meet him in battle. Can you imagine for a moment how you would have felt if you were one of the Israelites looking on? When you saw the giant charging this youth? And then you saw this youth respond, not by running away, but running toward Goliath? Toward this monster? You probably could have heard a pin drop in the valley for those few seconds. Just the sound of feet running across rock and sand. All eyes were fixed on the valley of Elah and what was unfolding. It's taken us 47 verses to bring us to the moment of victory, and this is how it happened. Verse 49, Then it happened, when the Philistine rose and came and drew near David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand into his bag, took from it a stone, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. With something of remarkable brevity, considering the previous 48 verses, Goliath has fallen. Just as the Philistine idol Dagon had fallen face forward before the Ark of the Covenant, Goliath has fallen on his face before David. Verse 50 reminds us that there is nothing ordinary about this victory. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, and there was no sword in David's hand. No sword in his hand reminds us that it was the might of God, not the might of weapons that allowed David to defeat Goliath. Well, then David did as he promised, and in verse 51, David removed Goliath of his head. But because he had no sword or weapon of his own, we read, Then David ran down and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And how did the rest of the Philistines respond? Well, they reneged and they turned and fled. Instead of becoming Israel's slaves, as Goliath had promised, if somebody could defeat him, they turned tail and ran. Their champion was dead. In the most unexpected turn of events, salvation has come to Israel. The fear of death has been defeated. The headless body of Goliath was proof of this fact. So they ran. And how did the Israelites respond? Those who had themselves fled and drawn back in fear at the presence of Goliath, death, earlier in this chapter? One verse 52. The men of Israel and Judah rose, shouted, and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'araim, even to Gath and Ekron. Gath and Ekron were the two nearest of the Philistine cities. The Philistines had five major capital cities. And they pursued them to the all the way to the gates of the two nearest, running them in, chasing them into their den. 
Notice as well, verse 53, the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. The Israelites received not just mercy and salvation from the fear of death, they received abundant riches that day. Again, what a wonderful reminder of our own salvation. It would be enough if we simply receive mercy, right? If we only received mercy. But we receive so much more than that. We've received immense grace. We've received adoption as sons of this God who saves. And as Paul proclaims in Ephesians 1, we have received every spiritual blessing. As he told the Philippians in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's salvation often is accompanied with far beyond what we could ask or think. Now, verse 54 is a bit strange if you know your biblical history. If you were to go back to Judges 1, when the Israelites entered the promised land, entered the land of Canaan, we learn that they battled the Jebusites, but they didn't drive them out. They let them stay in the land and even repopulate the city of Jerusalem. It was the Jebusites who occupied Jerusalem after the conquest. At this point, Saul didn't have his capital in Jerusalem. Jerusalem isn't even an Israelite city right now. So what's going on here? In fact, David, he doesn't even visit Jerusalem, at least as far as we know, doesn't even visit it until 2 Samuel chapter 5, when he goes and takes it and captures it to be his new royal city. So what's going on? Well, first off, the narrator is quite aware of the fact that Israel does not currently occupy Jerusalem. He's not confused. This isn't a mistake in the writing. What he's doing is he's introducing some additional information he wants us to know and to think about and to pay attention at, or pay attention to, at this point in the story. Well, what does he want us to know? He wants us to know that, first off, eventually David will take the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Because he wants us to connect the defeat of Goliath with David's coming to Jerusalem. That was the promise, that he would come to Jerusalem, that he would reign from God's, what God often calls his holy hill. It's as though as he, he were saying, this is where David's journey to Jerusalem, to Israel's throne, began. He was anointed in chapter 16, but the journey to the throne begins here with the defeat of Goliath. The anointed future king will arrive in Jerusalem, and we should remember it. We should expect it. We should anticipate it. And the narrator wants to make sure that we do that by connecting the death of Goliath with Jerusalem. In much the same way, we should remember that our King Jesus is coming again to rule and to reign. We don't have to wait till the end to be reminded of that fact. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The comment that David put Goliath's armor in his tent there, 
underlines the fact that this victory was David's. It wasn't Saul's. The armor didn't go to Saul's tent. It went to David's. It belonged to the future king, not the present king. It belongs to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Verses 55 through 58, the narrator closes out this this wonderful story by bringing Saul and David together once more. Once more brings together the current king and the future king. And the purpose, it would seem, is to remind us of the events and the promise again back in 1 Samuel 16. Verse 54 reminds us of where David will end up. Verses 55 through 58 remind us of the promises of all that's to come. When David answers Saul in verse 58, David takes us back to Bethlehem, to that secret meeting that so few knew about at this time, namely that David is the coming king. And yet again, we should not miss the anticipation we have for another who comes from Bethlehem, who will rule and reign in eternity, a king and a savior greater than David. The anticipation that the story of David and Goliath creates, that David's own life creates around Jesus Christ, around the Savior, is tremendous. There's one more that we connection that we breezed over. You know, David used a rather unusual expression in verse 14 when he was talking to Goliath. When he said, I come in the name of the Lord. This expression occurs only one other time in the Old Testament. It's in a psalm written at a time when the writer was threatened by enemies and there was once again the fear of death. Death surrounded him on all sides. Victory once again came not by might nor by sword, but in the name of the Lord. That psalm, Psalm 118, has these famous words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed, in other words, is God's king who defeats our enemies. 18 was an important psalm for the New Testament writers. It occurs a number of times in the New Testament. But you'll hopefully remember it from our study of Matthew. We have just entered Jerusalem in Jesus' final weeks in our study. We're in chapter 22. Chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem in that final week of his earthly ministry. And we'll return to Matthew next week. But do you remember what song the crowds took up as Jesus approached Jerusalem? Matthew 21, verse 9. The crowds went before him or the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is the one who has now come in the name of the Lord. He is one of victory that outshines David just as his kingship outshines David. And so you see, we have a great deal in common with those Israelites in the Valley of Elah. And from what I can see, there's really two possibilities for you this morning. First, you may be like the Israelites at the beginning of our story, under the slavery from fear and death. 
waiting, like those Israelites, for a Savior to deliver you from the fear of death. And the good news for you this morning is that Jesus Christ has won the victory. The King has come. If you will cry out to him to save you from your slavery to sin, he will do just that. He will deliver you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so don't let another day go by living under the fear of sin and death and judgment. There's not an Israelite that day in Israel who would choose to remain under the fear of Goliath. The other possibility, as I see it, is that you are like the Israelites who have witnessed the great victory, who have seen Goliath fall, who have experienced salvation. And so we need this reminder. We need it each and every day. We need to rejoice at the salvation we have been given, following their example and rejoicing because an even greater victory has been won for us. We want to encourage one another to remember and live as those who have been set free from the bondage to sin, who have been set free to live, to live not under the hope of fear, but to live in loving expectation of serving our King who saves. We need to remember the words of 1 Corinthians. 57, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're in one of those two places this morning. One of the things I think we so desperately need in the church, we need good theology, we need good doctrine, we need to think rightly. But the other thing we really, really need, in fact, we have to have it with those things, lest we become like the church of Ephesus, that lost her first love, as we need to celebrate and rejoice and remember the victory at the cross. We need to stir our affections for love. That needs to be our motivation for those things. To try and do the right thing because it's the right thing isn't enough. We need to do it because we love and we rejoice and we are excited about the victory Christ has won for us on the cross. And the story of David and Goliath is frequently as you may have heard it, is a wonderful story to remind us of our need to celebrate that victory, to remind us of the victory that we have in Jesus. In fact, we sang that this morning, victory in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do want to give you thanks this morning as we celebrate and Sing about and think about the great victory that has been won on the cross. A victory much greater than that that was won that day in the Valley of Elah, though it's a wonderful reminder of that great victory. Father, we have a much greater gospel that has been proclaimed, the gospel. All other gospels pale in comparison to it. Help us to remember it, to rejoice in it. Let us be quick to remind one another of the great victory we have in Christ and the joy that it brings. We no longer fear death and judgment because we have hope of life after death. Help us to show our love for you, our thankfulness 
and our excitement about this victory through how we live and how we preach and how we proclaim this wonderful gospel message. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.